Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So reads the word of God. Please be seated now and let's look into this text together. We find ourselves already in the middle of an important discussion as we enter into today's passage in the largest turning point that exists in this lengthy but meticulously unified letter, we were introduced in verses 1 and 2, which we just read again, we were introduced to the initial response we should have toward the many mercies of God that are sovereignly lavished upon us through the saving work of Christ that we receive by faith. In short, we live all of our lives for him. That's what we read in verses 1 and 2. As we progress, we're going to see what that looks like. We present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice and resisting the pressures of this world to squeeze us into its mold, we embrace the mind that is ours in Christ Jesus. That's the language Paul used with the Philippian church. We embrace the mind that is ours in, trans, in, in Christ Jesus with all of the transforming effect that that has on us toward living and loving the good and acceptable, pleasing and perfect will of God. That's what happens in us. We present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice and resisting the pressures of this world to squeeze us into its mold. We embrace the mind that's ours in Christ Jesus with all of the transforming effect that has on us toward living and loving the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. That's it. If we could embrace that, if we could understand that, if we could live in that simple, straightforward truth, 
we should just go to lunch together today and fellowship in it. But because we need a little bit of help hearing and appreciating what we read in this text, we move on. Paul at this point turns his attention toward telling us just what this transformed life looks like as he moves into verse 3 and following. He tells us just what this transformed life looks like and the first characteristic he identifies is humility. The personal disposition that displays our, our clear understanding that there's nothing to boast about Nothing personally to boast about when all the blessings and benefits we enjoy by faith in Christ are given to us as gifts by God according to his merciful grace, according to his sovereign will. It's not because we've earned them or still less because we deserve them it's not because we stroked our chin and considered the options and chosen them. All of that is, without, is outside of our range of function. We can't do that. It's beyond us. We are unable. And the, the first three chapters of Romans tell us exactly why. And then from there on, we're learning what God did about it so that we could be reconciled to him for all eternity and then begin knowing what it's like to live as a sacrifice, to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, to actually test and approve the will of God, to love it. But even more than all of this, I think we hear, we hear a uniquely relevant word in this passage today, one that speaks to our present day in a way that's really helpful. Even, even redemptively corrective, I might say. So let's just dig into this text here and see where it takes us, see what it gives us, where it, where it leads us when we present our bodies to God and have our minds renewed by him. Let's see where it goes and appreciate what Paul has written here. We'll take this journey in three sequential steps. You can see them listed in your bulletin. The first characteristic of a transformed life, we already introduced that, but we'll spend a little bit more time on it now, verse 3. Then the primary rationale for this first characteristic in verses 4 and 5, so a little basis for that characteristic of humility that we just identified. Then, third, the truest expression of this characteristic and rationale how we show it, how we live it, verses 6 through 8. So that's where we're headed. Let's walk these three steps together. We just identified the first characteristic of a transformed life as being humility. But let's see where Paul, or see how Paul makes that point here. Let's see how he unpacks it. Verse 3, For by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. To pause there for a moment. This is an apostle saying this. This is the apostle to the Gentiles who's telling us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. So if the grace of God was sufficient, we might say, for 
the Apostle Paul not to think of himself more highly than he ought. We have to believe that it will be sufficient for each one of us to hear and respond to that as well. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, a verse that we appreciated a great deal as we moved through 1 Corinthians, but one that is helpful here as well. What do you have that you did not receive? That actually is what we learn in this letter to the Romans. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? <laughs> what a disarming question that is for us prideful human beings. Paul knew that all he had was from God. And we might borrow the language of the last verse of chapter 11 there. That all he had was from God uh, and through him and to him. Given to accomplish the purpose for which God gave it so that, so that it left no ground for boasting. All that we are and have comes to us from him. And if that's true, why would we ever boast as though we hadn't? And in the place of this, the transformed believer is to think with sober judgment. So don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. There's a good definition. A sane, sensible, realistic estimate of oneself. From one commentator, the product of the renewed mind, we might say, from another. And each, according to the measure of faith, God has assigned. That's what Paul says as he finishes verse 3 here. And that's a challenging description. The measure of faith that God has assigned. One commentator wrote that there are seven different ways to understand measure. And five different ways to understand faith. And two different ways to understand of so there are 70 combinations to consider in that little three-word statement, measure of faith. What are we talking about here? I would just say to you, we don't have to go through all 70. I can tell you, you would not be here when I finish if we <laughs> decided to follow that course. But I also think that the differences between them are subtle. We've come to a different understanding of the different ways that Paul means faith. We, we're, we're introduced to this word measure, and we'll say something about that in a moment. The differences are subtle, and really just two or three possibilities are primary, and I think we'll see as we move through it that it really doesn't matter which one of those we choose. In fact, we benefit by having them all together as one. It's a little blurry exactly what Paul meant here. And every once in a while, as you press into the blurriness between a couple or three different possible meanings, and the farther you go into it, it doesn't clarify a whole lot. A lot of times that means that we're supposed to hear them all. And they're all feeding into the outcome of what we do in response to this text of Scripture. So, two quick key questions that we want to answer this morning just to appreciate the variance and then to decide what we want to mean, what we, what we believe Paul means here and what we want to take away from it. The first question is, what does measure mean? The second is, what does faith mean? So let's just walk through them and ask that question. When Paul talks about the word measure of faith here, it could be that he's talking about the device by which something is measured, the standard of measurement, or he could be talking about something that that device measures. 
whatever it is that it's measuring, all right? So if you point out a gallon jug of water, you may be referring to the gallon jug itself as the measuring device, the thing by which the water is measured. Or you could be talking about the gallon of water that's in it, what is being measured. So Paul is referring either to God's measure of faith signed equally to all believers because it's in his measure, probably in our saving faith, or he's talking about the faith that God measures out seemingly in varied amounts to different believers, likely observable most in this text by the exercise of their spiritual gifts. According to the varying degrees of faith or trust in God that each one experiences in response to God's call. And we see that bleeding over into the answer to the second question. What does faith mean? So if measure means either the measuring device or standard or the thing that's being measured, now we're talking about the thing that's being measured, faith, the measure of faith. It's either common faith or it's distributed faith wrote one commentator. It's either our common salvation, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, that's the way the letter of Jude refers to it, the gospel itself, we might even say Jesus himself. It's either our common faith, so faith is the measure, or it's the quantity of faith measured out differently to each believer's. As Schreiner wrote, the, the trust that each believer possesses. All right, should we take time and try to put those together in four combinations since we've got two possibilities on each one? I would say no. I would say that deciding which one it is, how we view each of these two, to me, almost doesn't matter once you've pressed far enough into it to see what it's talking about, what Paul is talking about. It, it, it's not necessarily a profitable pursuit to try to sub divide and subdivide between them. What Paul is telling us here is not hard to hear. What he's telling us here is not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to think in a sane and sensible and realistic way that is anchored to the saving and sanctifying and serving quality and quantity of faith that God has assigned to us. <clears throat> so you can see, I think we just put the two together and we get a sense of what Paul is actually saying here. And you can see how different threads here will tie off at different parts through this passage. He's telling us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to think with a sane and sensible realistic judgment that is anchored to the saving and sanctifying serving quality and quantity of faith that God has assigned to us. It seems to me like it barely matters and almost seems wrong-headed to try to decide whether Paul is talking about one or the other. Talking about saving or sanctifying faith, faith that's the same from one of us to the next, faith that differs in measure from one of us to the next. It's all given by God. It's all for the accomplishment of his purpose in us, individually and among us as his people. And the bottom line is not at all unclear, I don't believe. Don't be proud. There's no reason for it, we might say. Just glory in the fact that you belong to God, 
that he's measured out faith to you, saving faith and sanctifying faith. You're a recipient of God's grace. You're a recipient of his faith by faith in Christ. So you're on his team. And that's just where he goes next to talk about what it looks like to be on his team. We're going to delay that for just a moment, though. Because here is where we want to look a little bit more into what Paul is telling us here and understand that uniquely relevant word I mentioned a little bit earlier in our introduction. So think about this as a, a little parenthesis and a commentary on life in this present world. All right? The absolutely central point Paul is making here in verse 3 is that the foremost characteristic of a transformed mind is a humble, sober, sane, sensible understanding of who we are. The absolutely central point Paul is making here in verse 3 is that the foremost characteristic of a transformed mind is a humble, sober understanding of who we are. This word think, how we think about things, it's used four times in this verse. Variations of it, twice directly, twice as a compound. Four times, how we think. Don't think of yourself more highly, there's one, than you ought to think. That's number two. But think, there's number three, with sober judgment. Sober thinking is the word. There's the fourth. Four times in one word, how we think and how we think about ourselves. So that's clearly the point Paul is making. The foremost characteristic of a transformed mind is a humble, sober understanding of who we are, embracing a self-perception that is assigned. There's that word from verse 3, that is assigned to us by God. Just as the transforming renewal of our mind happens from inside out, we talked about last week, it's an interchange that works itself out. The grace and faith which accomplish that transformation come from the outside in. They come from God who's doing an inner work in us through them. Just as in Martin Luther's words, we have an alien righteousness, meaning it comes to us from an outside source, God himself by faith in Christ. We could say here that we have an alien self-perception. It's worked in us by God's grace through faith. He's doing that work. He's giving us the grace and faith that reshape us into his likeness. Now this is how healthy self-perception is formed. We're told by our creator who we are and what we're made for, what makes us happy, what makes us happier, what makes us happiest. We're told by our creator who we are and what we're made for. Things don't work best when we try to do that ourselves. And they go even further awry when we start going against the designer's intent and insisting on our right to do so, our right to go against his intent, saying that we have the freedom to determine who we are. 
and what we want and how we want it. And I would say now today, even how others ought to respond to our choices. Things go really awry when we think we have the freedom to define ourselves and then tell others how they ought to receive that. We learn two things here that are of fundamental importance in this passage. Fundamental importance to our happiness as human beings. First, we learn that we're at our best when we embrace God's definition of who we are. We are at our best when we embrace God's definition of who we are. But even if we reject the offer of his grace, two, we're far better off if we realize that he made us to live and thrive in community, not in isolation. That truth goes all the way back to Genesis 2. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. That's not just a statement about marriage. It's a statement about the nature of humanity. We were made to live in community. So life goes better if we learn who we are and develop our self-understanding in the company of others whether family or friends or society as a whole. And surely we're best, including all three of these spheres, in the development of our self-understanding. It's called enculturation. It's called socialization. But when we reverse this course and insist on defining ourselves according to our own internal desires... and then forcing those choices outward in an attempt to to redefine the world around us, essentially trying to recreate, recreate the world in our own image, then my friends, only chaos will result from that. And that observation isn't judgmental. At its heart, it's sociological. Don't get nervous there. It's theological. But it's true sociologically, even for those who don't embrace the faith that we embrace. If we attempt to define ourselves according to our own internal desires and then force that choice outward to redefine the world around us, we are working against the, desires and the designer's intent and only chaos will result. The world just wasn't made to work that way. Community values redefined to satisfy the desires of the individual. Indeed, the competing desires of each individual. When that mindset arises, the mindset we see trying to redefine our world today, the very foundations of social order will soon crumble to dust. Unable to support the weight the weight of divergent self-interest, of, of cavalier self-assertion, and of unyielding individualism. The community of humanity cannot sustain that kind of change, not long-term. Chaos and crumbling will result. That's just an applicational reading of the Word of God at this point. So what's the answer? I'm going to continue on for this for a moment, but we're moving now into verses 4 and 5. What's the answer to this? 
For our world today, even those in it who reject the call of Christ, I would say this, we'd be far better off if we could remember that freedom is marked by self-restraint, not by self-expression. And therefore, the well-being of society is dependent on the individuals within it at least curbing their aberrant desires, if not harnessing them and guiding them in the direction of what is best for all. That's just a broad social commentary at the moment from the Word of God. It's a simple truth, writ large. A selfless and sober, sensible realization that this is the only way a growing plurality of people can live together in a finite space with finite resources. But more to our point today, more to Paul's point today, these few moments of reflection are just a broader application of the truth that's being affirmed here about a subset of humanity, namely those who have embraced the truth of the gospel by faith in Christ. The things I've just said are true of humanity, they're true of all of us. Now, Paul is talking in this section actually about a subset of humanity, and we need to get our attention back there. This instruction on the foundation of personal identity is true for all of us because God is the creator of all of us, even those who don't believe in him. But there's more to this picture than just identity instruction here. And the rest just reserved for those who, who've been adopted into the family of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are looking to be transformed by the renewal of their mind. End parenthesis. There's some thoughts just on what we're facing today as a culture and how God's word speaks to it and what's going wrong here. But now back to his word to the church and specifically to this group, how to think about such things. What he's telling us here, verse 3, is that we should think of ourselves with sober judgment. I love that word sober, especially when we spread it to society as a whole. Think of ourselves with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. Verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members, not of it, but of one another. I love that Paul finishes that way. We are all one body in Christ, and not individually members of it, the one body in Christ. We are individually members of one another. Now, he's not saying anything different there. The one another is the body of Christ, but... What, we are, what we're seeing here is that he's emphasizing the fact that we are in community with one another. We're part of a community, and the definition of who we are is found when we're in and among the whole, not when we're off on our own. This is the same metaphor that Paul used to describe life together in the church over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, especially the second half of that chapter, verses 12 to 28. We're like one body with many members, he's telling us. And it doesn't make any more sense for any of us who are in Christ by faith to be off on our own 
outside of the fellowship of the body of Christ, outside the fellowship of the church, doesn't make any more sense for any of us to be out on our own than it does for our hand or our foot to be off away from the body. It's tragic when that happens, right? That's injury almost beyond description. And yet that's the picture that Paul uses here. Our identity comes to us within the community of believers. That's what Paul's talking about. So bottom line here, a transformed mind enables us to think rightly of ourselves, which leads us to recognize that we find our identity in the most satisfying way in and among the community of the redeemed. A spiritual group that's defined by the, the same sort of organic and unified diversity that's observable in, a, in the physical members of a physical body. That's who we are. That's how linked we are to one another. So how then does our identity express itself if this is true of us? How does this individuality show up if not in individual self-expression we see all around us in our day? Paul tells us. Verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity the one who leads with zeal the one who does acts of mercy I love this with cheerfulness what quality should we have when showing mercy to one another so many things could be a possibility how's Paul going to finish that instruction how is the one who shows mercy going to show that mercy oh cheerfully it's a joy to serve one another in short, God gives gifts to his people described elsewhere, namely Ephesians 4, as the spoils of the victory Jesus won for us at the cross. But with regard to those gifts, those gifts are given to be used as his people's unique individual expressions which fit together in the body of Christ like the interlocking pieces of a jigsaw puzzle to display the unified beauty of God's plan and purpose in and through the life of the local church. Our gifts function together, making us one body. It's the means by which it happens. It's the individual expression that feeds the whole. Fit together like the interlocking pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. I like that because here we're talking about our gifts. We could talk about them as the expression of our persons. We're pretty oddly shaped individuals, right? But the way God puts the church together is that our odd shapes come into contact with one another and fit together beautifully like a portrait of the saving grace of God with square corners and straight edges. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So there's an undeniable oneness discernible among the members of the church and in the world. The, the world-changing impact of the message through the church 
all accomplished by the gifts God has given working together in harmony with one another. My friends, that's the big picture. But what Paul is describing here is how the gifts should be exercised. That's the big picture of how they come together. Here he's talking about how they should be exercised, how they should be put into practice by God's people. So Romans 12 is not like 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul provides two lists of gifts so that we'll learn a bit about how they work and have some examples of how the gifts contribute to the life and ministry of the body. Here in Romans 12, he's doing something different. He's giving us a list of gifts, yes, but the emphasis is not on the definitions of the words or whether there are any additional gifts on on this list or on that one. Here, the emphasis is on believers exercising their gifts with their whole heart. So yeah, we get lists of gifts, but the, the point isn't to believe that somehow by putting these lists together, we've got an exhaustive listing of all the Spirit does. It just doesn't work like that. If you guys are around here at all on the campus during the week, on a day after there's been heavy winds or a storm, you're probably going to see Jerry Lacey here with his chainsaw cutting up branches and delivering them to the back of the property where they'll be taken care of at a later time. Is that not a spiritual gift that blesses the body? I don't see chainsawing in the list. I've teased Jerry about that. Jerry, I know you're in here. I see you. I've teased Jerry about that. Spiritual gift of chainsawing. It's a gift that blesses the body. We didn't have anybody with a chainsaw when I worked in an urban church. You know what? I didn't like where that one was headed. I... uh, I I could have said that better. (laughs) It's not about it being an exhaustive list. Paul's doing one thing in 1 Corinthians 12. He's, He's helping us understand what the gifts are and how they might be an expression of the church. Here, he's telling us how we ought to put them into practice. We're seeing that prophecy and service and teaching and exhortation and giving and leading and mercy We're seeing what they look like when they're expressed by Christians who have presented their bodies as a living sacrifice to God and are being transformed by the renewal of their mind. We're seeing what it looks like when that happens. We're setting the standard for how it's expressed. Spirit-enabled expression of spiritual gifts is the most profound display of who we are. It is our self-expression. It's our identity. It's how we perceive ourselves. Nothing gives a clearer or greater or truer or more lasting demonstration of our identity, of who we are, than this. So we exercise our gifts with an increasing awareness that that is so. That this is who we are. 
apart from any other vocation we might have, involvement we might participate in, accomplishment we may have achieved, exercising our God-given gifts according to the measure of faith he has given within the company of the body of Christ is our primary identity. That's how we are to think of ourselves. That's sober judgment. That's recognizing what's truly important. That's understanding that we are in this world, but not of this world. We are citizens of another world. It takes priority over this one, and this one is just the on-ramp to that one, not making it unimportant. Many assignments from God for which we need to be faithful in this life and the exercise of our gifts in harmony with the body of Christ is how those are achieved. One quick word on definition, though. I think that we're comfortable with each of the gifts that are in this list, with perhaps one exception, the one that starts the list, namely prophecy. Because we're here, I should make a quick comment on that. Generally, we think in Scripture that prophecy is, is speaking under divine inspiration, right? It's not just speaking with God's voice, it's speaking with God's authority. That's what we understand from the Old Testament prophets. And if something a prophet said did not come true, he was to be stoned to death because he was presuming to speak for God and God doesn't make statements that don't come to pass. We also know that prophets along with apostles lay the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2. But we also know that there is some gift of prophecy, some New Testament expression of prophecy where the words of the prophet need to be tested as they're heard. Not just received as God's word. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 14. We hear echoes of it in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 1 John 4 to test what we hear and listen to it and evaluate it and respond to it appropriately. So that is likely the sort of prophecy that Paul is referring to here and at some other time we can get into that in greater detail. The question is simply, what is our bottom line today? There's the question we need to answer as we finish. And friends, this one is going to be simple. This is such a clear, straightforward teaching passage that all we need to do is walk through it and understand a bit of the nuances and the implications of what we're reading on the page here. But in answer to the question, what is our bottom line today? I would say just, just hear this text and seek God to help us live it. To help us live it together as the body of Christ. Don't get caught up in thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But think with sober judgment. According to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Assigned to each and every one of us as members of one body of believers. Show your individuality by expressing your gift as just one part within the unified diversity of the miracle that is the church. Nothing presents a better picture of who you are. And exercise your gift with your whole heart. 
in keeping with the great salvation we have received and the one to which we are responding in this passage of Scripture. There's our bottom line today. Now, if you will, let's pray. And as I pray, those who are going to help serve communion and musicians, please return to the front. Heavenly Father, this is a stunning passage of Scripture. It's a passage that tells us something about fundamentally who we are, even just as human beings, and who we answer to. But it also speaks most directly and most clearly a specific and direct word of instruction to the church of how we as believers should think of ourselves individually and collectively. And Father, I pray, I pray that that understanding might take root among us. I pray, Lord God, that we might think with your mind, feel with your heart, see with your eyes. And we might work together as the body of Christ, understanding that even the uniqueness that each one of us brings to the table is intended by you to be part of the big picture that you are doing in this place. And then what you're doing in this place, part of the even bigger picture of what you are doing through your people around the world. Father, help us not just to work well together within the walls of this place. Help us to work well together as we go out into this world. Help us, Lord God, to be used by you to open the eyes of the unbelieving to the glorious salvation that is ours in Christ and to the many different ways that it sets aright the, the different ways in which this world is going wrong. Help us to do that in great faith, Lord God, with compassion, with humility and gentleness, but with clarity and precision to the praise of your glory and in manifestation of the work of your spirit in us and through us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.